Okay, today we're back with an amazing episode of Angel. This is one of the best episodes we've ever done of this podcast. Devin Parekh is here from Insight. Devin started his career as an analyst at Blackstone in 1991 when I was still at Fordham at college at night, and I was doing Cyber Surfer magazine, writing about DVDs, and then he moved to Berenson & Co. But in 2000, he joined Insight. He's been there for 22 years. He's seen three cycles, the dot-com bust, the great financial crisis, right? Remember that? And now this boom bust. In that time, he's made over 140 investments. And these are in big companies. We had an amazing conversation. He is one of the most thoughtful, uh, fascinating guys in our industry, a great capital allocator, and he takes the work seriously, right? And that's what I'm trying to do here with this series is find the people who've been there for three, in some cases four, of these boom-bust cycles and who are incredibly hardworking and who roll up their sleeves during hard times and do the work. This is going to be an amazing show. Get your pen and paper out. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash angel and post your first job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud cost reduction with clients saving an average of over 60%. Twist listeners can get a cloud cost audit with a personal consultation free of charge. Visit cast.ai slash twist to get started. And acquire.com. Whether you want to sell a solo project or a booming startup with hundreds of employees, acquire.com has the tools, experience, and most importantly, engaged buyers to help you achieve your acquisition goals. Sign up for free at try.acquire.com slash twist. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. You know, we're, we're sitting here uh, in 2023 wondering, how is this third boom bus cycle that many of us have lived through from the internet to the Great Recession, Web 2.0, and now whatever we're going to wind up calling this a speculative, a speculative asset recession is uh, what I'm calling it, speculative asset bubble. Um, there are so many lessons between these three bubbles, and we're all trying to figure it out, especially startups, angel investors, people who listen to this program. And we thought we would try to find people who are old enough to have lived through three of these bubbles and hopefully have either been building companies as founders or investing in them or some combination of that. And my friend Devin Parekh from Insight uh, Venture Partners. It's Insight Venture Partners, right, Devin? Actually, Insight Partners now. It used to oh, be Insight Partners. Got it. Okay. So we tightened the name up. We got one word <laughs> out. It's much more, uh, much tighter. It's good to see you. You joined Insight back in 2000 with impeccable timing. Was no, it right it, before it, the bubble burst or right as it burst that you took the job? It was right before it burst. I joined literally January of 2000. Um, huh. It felt like the... Um, you know, I think you know, lots of people who thought that they were going to retire and like, you know, by the middle of 2000, because their yeah. funds were all going you know, to make five and 10 times their money. And it was amazing how quickly, uh, things change, um, from our, I think we had our annual meeting, um, my, my first annual meeting, which I was just listening to, uh, at Insight was early 2000, I think February, March, and from that to six months later, it was a totally different world. <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it was quite a. It was a quite a time to join. I didn't actually um, get the, well, you could say the, the fun, but uh, I didn't get to actually do the deployment in, in 1999. When I got there, we actually had uh, deployed a lot of capital and had a portfolio and the portfolio looked great, like everybody's portfolio looked. But then, of course, the market changed a lot. So the market changes dramatically. Stocks that are publicly traded in the internet space started losing 90 95 99% of their value $100 stocks became penny stocks it was uh in some ways very similar to what we've just experienced in the past year how did you and your partners at the firm approach this cataclysmic event and and what was the work you had to do and then let's talk about how that relates to the work that we're all going to have to do here during this 2023 uh year of i think cleanup and and resetting of the market sure i mean look i mean we're going to hit all three over the course of the next hour um and i think they're all different and remember it, the 99 one it started really much more just with tech uh and then 9 11 happened and of course it affected the broader um economy but it started with tech in fact i have just pulled up some of the stats if you looked at kind of 
January of 2000 to December of 2002, you know, S&P the, went down, uh, the peak to trough down 40, Dow down 27, but NASDAQ and software down 70, right? Wow. Um, so, yeah. it, I mean, I, it was a good reminder just pulling up the statistics of like how, and then when and, and a big chunk of that really happened, the broader market actually held up pretty well until 9-11, and then you had an impact on the broader economy. I think, you know, look, the biggest distinction between the 99-2000 period and today was a few things. One, you had a lot less companies who actually had a business model, mm. right? You had a lot, lot less companies where even product market fit or the underlying economic model didn't really necessarily work. Um, mm. That's one. Two, uh, companies were not as well capitalized as the companies were today. Um, and we'll come to that. Um, and so what... It, for me, um, it was, uh, in, at the time, it was, it felt like a miserable experience. But when I look back on it, um, it was probably one of the most important experiences to kind of go through because we had a, also keep in mind that cycle, Jason, you'll remember, really lasted a long time. Um, you know, it was, it was a multi year um, kind of well, time period. It also had through. those two phases, correct? You just and mentioned it had two phases. We, we had the dot com burst. 70% goes out of the market. And then the black swan of black swan events of our lifetime, 9-11, who could have ever imagined that the you know largest attack on American soil could would happen just on a, a, a crazy, beautiful September afternoon, it, it tragically I, in New York. And, and, we were both and, there. I, and I was in New York and I yeah. remember sitting in the exact conference room I was sitting when it happened. But I think the challenge um, that you had back then is that really you had to, what you had to go do, look, it's always when things are good, we're all just cheerleaders. I mean, if, mm. if we're being honest, um, but when things get tough, you really got to peel the onion back and see what you have. Um, and what you generally find when you peel the onion back is maybe you have a little less than you thought. Um, <laughs> and in the 99, 2000 time period, you probably had a lot less than you thought. And so it really, while, while you were taking costs out, um, lots of times the companies had very little revenue. And so you could take costs out and reduce burn, but until you can actually create a business, it doesn't really help you other than reduce your your period of till cash out. Um, so, so and oftentimes you're just trying to find a home, you know, for these companies, right? And try to kind of find a reasonable place for them to go. Now we we were fortunate. I think that we were in fund three at the time. We're right now raising, you know, we're we're investing on fund twelve, um, and we had. We, from the beginning, had done both kind of growth equity and some buyouts. Um, and so we actually had this portfolio that ended up being ballast um, in a time when you a lot of these business models that ended up not really kind of working out. And a bunch of those deals, it, it still took a lot of work. But, you know, we managed to claw our way back to basically a 1x on that fund. Mm. And I think there was a lot of... I mean, I look back on that time and I feel like I, I, well, it wasn't, it was our worst performing fund, obviously. It's not, I look back on that time as being really important. And I think it's been really helpful for me um, as we went through 2008 and, and then today. What was the LP reaction when you put your head down, you work for years to just claw your way back, to give back every LP, you gave us, you know, a dollar. Here's your dollar back. Well, that was years of work to just return one X. Maybe talk a little bit about yeah. how they felt about it. Because I would think they would be highly respectful of the, the, well, the seriousness at which you were. return that capital. No, I think they were. Because if you looked at kind of what happened to you know, NASDAQ over that period of time, you know, it, it was down 50%. And so to be able to kind of get to one X, and of course, you can't, you know, you can't eat relative returns and you can't eat one, I mean, the one X doesn't give you kind of a lot to yeah. do with. Um, it's, it's also says that in a really kind of unprecedentedly bad case, um, if you're able to kind of get capital back, it actually gives people some comfort around what mm -hmm. the downside is. And, and, and the interesting thing is keep in mind, and I don't think this is just true of insights. So I don't want to make this about insight, but, but, but keep in mind that at the time, the amount of, penetration in the portfolio of recurring revenue models close to close to zero we had some but relative to 2008 and certainly relative today 
So we didn't even have the downside protection from the business model standpoint back in 2000, by and large, mm. that we have today. Um, and so that actually, I actually think, you know, when we get to talking about today, it kind of says yeah. that I feel like even better that we've got some real recurring revenue businesses uh, that gives us nice stability. If you want to crush it this year, you're not going to do it alone. Remember what I always say, nobody gets there alone. It's always a team. And you need to fill your team with the hardest working, the most dogged, and of course, the most qualified team members you can find. How are you going to find those people? Where are they? You know where they are. There were 875 million other users are. Think about it, almost a billion. And that's LinkedIn the largest professional network in the history of humanity. And all that talent, they're looking for an inspired mission. And that's your company. So here's what I want you to do. It's very simple. I want you to post an ad for the hardest job you're trying to fill. Maybe you post two. But the first one's going to be free. LinkedIn.com slash angel. Get your first job posting for free by going to LinkedIn.com slash angel. Some of the best people I've ever hired came from LinkedIn. Of course it did. And if you are hiring, you'll get that purple ring. You've seen it now. The purple ring around your profile photo. And then people click and you get more candidates and you get them faster. And that's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires. Again, the call to action is so generous for my friends at LinkedIn. LinkedIn.com slash angel. LinkedIn.com slash A-N-G-E-L to post your job for free terms and conditions do apply. Let's get to work, people. In a way, it's a very interesting point that I think people have to understand. During that dot-com era, people were trying a lot of new business models. They were trying to even just get a website up and running and let people log into it. It was really about laying the tracks and figuring out how to, you know, get, get these to just simply function, let alone come up with a business model. There was no subscription model. It was, you know, a time when if you actually, when the, when the tide went out, you're saying you peel back the onion, there, there is no business model there. So now you're just trying to find a place, you know, can, can Microsoft or Google or somebody buy this company? Actually, Google wasn't really in the game back then. Google wasn't in the game. But, um, yeah. but and if you looked at the software businesses back then, with, with some exceptions, um, you know, a lot of them were perpetual license companies, right? Then mm. in an economic downturn, the perpetual license business gets impacted by far the most, right? That's much easier. If your cable company came to you once a year in January and said, hey, do you mm. want to pay for your cable um, yeah. or do you want to pay for your Netflix? You might have a different view than when it just auto charged on your credit card. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's what I would just say is that I think sometimes people underestimate, they, 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 they look at these three things and they say, Oh, like NASDAQ was down by this much or that much. And that's the way they compare. But I think what that misses oftentimes is how much evolution there's been in the underlying business models over that period of time. Yeah, I mean, it's almost I think it's analogous to crypto, maybe if you look at dot com companies and crypto companies, the dot com companies were just trying to figure out like, is there a product here? A lot of the crypto companies are just trying to figure out like, how do I even deliver a product, let alone have a, a business model other than selling tokens to reflect no, and, back and to and you. I think the challenge yeah. just on just on that kind of thing. I mean, the challenge that I think the, you know, the, you know, the crypto market is what they're trying to show is if you go back to 1999, and you say, okay, a lot of people say the and the analogy for crypto today might be 1999, right? Just the 1999 of kind of the, that market. Um, and what you know, what I often say is, look, but what you had in 1999, and I'll use an example of a company that we were not investors in, like say Pets.com. I picked that one because obviously people joke about it. There's by the way a company called Chewy, which has kind of gone after the same market in a much more in an interesting way. But if you were a user of Pets.com, you know it was a better user experience, right? Pet food showed up at your home. Maybe at a discount. Now the economic model made no sense. The shipping cost and free shipping and all that didn't make sense. But as a consumer, you actually felt like you got a new way to to buy things. It was a good experience, an uneconomic experience, but a good experience. Chewy figured out how to make it economic. I think the question, for example, Web three is how many Web three companies actually can make the argument that it's a better experience, even if the underlying economic model is not yet proven, right? And I think that's the, that's the question um, that, you know, that market's going to have to answer. All right, so let's fast forward to today. Interestingly, yeah. you gave us that little snapshot of the markets, how the, you know, the S&P and, you know, wasn't as impacted as the NASDAQ. <laughs> you look at today's numbers, S&P down 22%, mega cap uh, tech 
down around 20%. Uh, but the growth stocks, you know, those have been down 50 to 80%. Your Pelotons, yeah, our, we have a Coinbase. Yeah, we have a comp set for just SaaS companies that we use for our valuation. That's down 54%, right? Where the Dow Jones is down nine, just to take the really large, yeah. big, right? So it's a, it's really, um, and of course, we have to, even this market, I feel like there's two segments of it, right? Because there's mm -hmm. a COVID and then kind of this kind of post-COVID period. Um, so we talked about it, how there's kind of two segments of that 99 period, different. But even here, right? Like I remember in March when COVID hit, getting on the phone with our investors and basically kind of making a few predictions. You know, one was we don't think we're going to deploy a lot of capital in the next two years or at least the next year. We, in fairness, I think I said the next year because we didn't know how long COVID would last. Um, you know, we expect liquidity to be very constrained. And, um, you know, we expect the operating performance of our portfolio to be pretty challenged because the economy was shutting down. Right. right. And it's amazing. I was 0 for 3, right? Like I was wrong. <laughs> I was about three. to say, wow, you missed uh, each one. Yeah. Like you don't hire me as a predictor. And so, um, because COVID had these impacts on spend that I don't think any of us really anticipated. Right. Now, the interesting thing is I was wrong on those predictions, but I think what we ended up, what we also ended up as a market being wrong on sometimes is we, we took some of those behavioral changes. And kind of extrapolated them out into the future, right? And again, I'm going to yeah. use an example of a company. I'm not in, we're not investors in, but Peloton, right? I think we kind of, yeah. we got to the mindset that, oh, it's great to work out at home. I guess everyone's going to work out at home all the time. Or it's great yeah. to have Zoom so people are never going to get together again. Um, turns out that actually people like to interact in person. Turns out that people actually like going to gyms because it's social. Yeah. Um, and so I think that a lot of these behavioral e-commerce obviously people went to e-commerce and we said oh this is structural now it's just a there's a portion of the population that's not going to go back to stores well it turns out that people actually like going to stores so some of these behavioral changes that we were wrong that demand was going to go down really quickly and then of course you had the backdrop of a massive government stimulus and we, we kind of have to talk about that both as it relates to you know fiscal policy but it also as it relates to monetary policy, because you started yeah. with, I think you said speculative asset bubble or something like that. Um, you know, you can't underestimate the impact that the rate environment that we've been living in has had the, 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 the magnitude of the fiscal policy, uh, that's gone into the system that's had, anyway, we hit a lot of topics there, but there are kind of two yeah. elements of this current period. Yeah. We, we learned something, I think, from that pandemic, which is, you know, when you're trying to figure out what the impact is going to be, the complete absolute shutdown created a bunch of pandemic businesses. Do those behaviors stick with us? Or do, are they transient behaviors? You know, you're going to find out seems like remote work, Yeah, we still going to have a larger number of remote work, folks. So yeah, real estate, commercial real estate is going to be impacted for some extended period of time. But yeah, going to the gym, I think people still like going to the gym and socializing. So Peloton, yeah, maybe got a little uh, overheated. And then this wild card, what happens when you drop just a large amount of money and you airdrop money on every citizen and they have access to Robinhood, Coinbase, FTX, whatever it is to buy stuff. And they're sitting at home with nothing to do. You can get these very weird behaviors. Uh, and, and now we're trying to parse those out. Cast AI audits and optimizes your cloud cost and performance for you, which the cloud companies don't do automatically, right? You have to do it. You have to take control of this. And Cast AI is going to help you do that. They eliminate the stuff you're paying for, but that you don't use. And they search for less expensive hosting options within your cloud provider. And then you begin saving immediately. Listen to this. On average, Cast AI customers save over 60% on their cloud spend. You know how out of hand the bills can get, right? The pricing uncertainty can really hurt your business. You get these surprise bills, but you can solve that right now with Cast AI. Imagine what you can do putting that capital back into your business, right? Everybody's in austerity mode. Everybody's in optimization mode and Cast AI is going to do that. It's priced for a tiny portion of what you save. So before you go and sign any multi-year cloud contracts or make any drastic personnel decisions, check out what Cast AI can do for you. So here's your call to action. Cast AI will give you a free 
cloud cost audit, which you can save, and a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash twist to get started. That's cast.ai slash TWIST for a free cloud cost audit today. And we met with the founders last week, and they are really excited to help founders and listeners to This Week in Startups save on their cloud bills. So give them a call. Go visit cast.ai slash twist. You also get this weird behavior of people coming into your business and I, you do a lot of like series b series c investing uh, i think um since you have large funds you had a bunch of uh let's call them venture tourists you had a bunch of people playing the role of late stage venture capitalists tell me about how that impacted your business when we'll mention specific names here but some people come in and say hey what devin does is super easy we're going to just take what Devin does and other late stage folks, and we're just going to copy it. We're going to give 20% more money than they do. We're not going to require a board seat or governance. And we're just going to drop 50 million into, you know, whatever, a, a company or two a week for a year at the top of the market. Take us into that moment where the venture tourist showed up and then started competing with you. And let's face it, beating you on terms in many cases. And founders are like, well, if they're going to just airdrop us, $50 million, $100 million at a crazy valuation, we're taking it. Talk about yeah, that moment in time all, and then yeah. what it's left, you know, because it's yeah. left in so kind for, of a hole. So first of all, I'd say, I think we have lots of really good competitors that we respect. Um, you know, some of them are kind of big traditional venture capital funds. Some are more crossover funds. There's some, you know, public investors who've been doing private investing for a long time. But I think what what, what is true is over this re relatively short period of time, you had a flurry of new new funds that kind of came into this market that not consistently been in the market, um, and I think that uh, you know a few things uh, happened. One, and I think we all felt it. I'm sure Jason, you felt it as an angel investor as well, right? I think the number of times where it was like, "Hey, we need to do a Zoom on Saturday because somebody's going to drop a term sheet on Sunday, and if we don't drop a term sheet Sunday morning, that we got into that kind of cycle." Um, but I, I go back to one thing. I want to go make a COVID point, which I think is really important, um, which is that, you know, if you look at it in retrospect, um, I think COVID reduced friction too much, right? I think there's a point in time where we all appreciated not having to get on planes, not having to go to, um, you know, to board meetings in person, all these things that become a drag when you have a, you know, you have a big portfolio, whether that be an angel portfolio or a series hit portfolio or growth portfolio. But that reduction in friction made it too easy to do deals as well, right? Mm. Um, and so that actually partially enabled new new entrants to come into the market because now with a pretty small team, you can actually talk to lots of companies and significantly reduce cycle time of mm. of an investment. And I think that you know that had. That certainly that had some positive impacts, but it also had a lot of negative impacts, right? And I think the thing that everybody goes to always is diligence, right? Oh, like diligence. But I think I don't. I I have this. One of the things uh, when we're talking to investors, I say is if you take a pick pick five deals that we did over 21, 20, 21 and twenty two, or pick one a quarter, and pick one from each quarter of each year. And then tear off the cover page and then compare them. And I want you to put them in order of when they happen, because of course, the ones that happened in 21 must have, you know, thinner diligence packages and we didn't do customer. You won't find that, right? Like mm. our process stayed consistent. Now, what it required us to do um, was significantly increase the size of the firm, right? So we tripled during COVID um, ah. as a firm. Uh, we added, our operational team now, when I say operational team, I'm talking about the team that helps due diligence on portfolio, but also kind of works with the portfolio companies post-investment is the largest team at the firm, right? Mm. Um, and if you go back to 2007 or 2008, it was probably one-eighth the size that it is today, right? So why is that important? One, I think it allowed us to, at a time when there was a lot of deals, still kind of do the work. That we're used to doing. Um, but I think a more important thing, and that's, and this is where I think the biggest difference is going to be, particularly for firms that didn't really build out their team. Cause right now, what companies need is they need help. Um, but when I say help doesn't always mean that you need 10 people there, but they, 
this is when kind of the rubber meets the road. Uh, we all talk about value add and we all talk about customer introductions. But right now, lots of entrepreneurs, a lot of companies are, you know, are struggling. And, and this is where they need help on rethinking their business model or rethinking their cost structure. And I think that the, the firms like us, but there's others who have you know, significantly invested in their operating teams to help proportional to their portfolio, right? So if you look at our professionals per portfolio company, the ratio has gone down. Um, even though our portfolio size has gone up dramatically, because mm-hmm. we knew that that as our portfolio size went up, we still wanted to make sure that we were able to do the things that we said we would do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the biggest investment we made. Now, Jason, does that mean that if we paid too much for a company in 2021, that's gonna that's gonna change that? It doesn't, right? And no. we, we can we should come to valuations. But what I feel like the risk in the market right now is you have a lot of firms out there with really large portfolios where they don't have sufficient kind of headcount to really, really work with the companies. And you go back to 1999 and we talked about like getting that one X back. Well, that took a lot of work. It took a lot of time working with the companies, making changes. So I think that we're, we kind of made the investments to kind of deal with that. But I do think that reduction in friction. Um, we don't have, you know, you have lots of times you show up to a board meeting, you haven't met them, you realize, oh, wow, Jason's a lot taller than I thought, or he's a lot shorter <laughs> than, but it's that first board yeah. meeting feeling sometimes. But I think it reminded you also, wow, I didn't really get to build enough of a relationship with this person. And when, when, you know, when the, when there's problems, you need to be able to draw on that relationship capital. Um, and so this we're is, as much time as we can right now with companies. This is critically important. You said earlier, Hey, when things are going up and to the right, people are cheerleaders, investors are cheerleaders, everybody's high fiving. Now, all of a sudden, you know, somebody flipped the car over three times, it's on the side of the road, you know, people are injured, man, we got to get this car back on the road somehow. I mean, this is, uh, and and the number of months of runway could be challenged. uh, And and some of the venture tourists, they didn't take board seats. And like you're saying, they had a five person team that was doing a deal a week. They didn't have an operations team, they've never run a company. And what I'm hearing from multiple folks, because we invest early, Series A, seed rounds, even before that, first money in, I have founders who are like, these people are not returning calls. These people are MIA. These people are no longer at the firms. So you had somebody who put 50 million into your company, didn't take a board seat, outbid everybody. Now they own five or 10% of the company, and they're no longer at that firm. They've gone and started a new firm because all the investments they made we're at the top of the market. And they said, you know what, Wait, there's no carry to be had here, I might as well start from zero. So this has led to, I guess, the old school firms, folks like us are going to have to roll up our sleeves and clean up the mess for everybody. Yeah, look, and I think but that's what we get paid to do, right? I yeah. think it's, you know, you, I mean, you get paid to do that as an angel, and we get paid to do that at the yeah. place that we play. But I think, you know, look, we've been around now for 27 years, right? And I think the way, and I hope as a firm, we're around for another 27 years. Um, and I think that you often are going to get really judged by what happens when things are tough, right? It's yes. easy to get judged when things are good. We all, look, the flip side is I always say, look, we're probably never as smart as we look when things are good. And we're never as dumb as we look when things are bad. Um, yeah. But I do think that this is this is a time, and look, the hard thing I, I, mean, I, you know, we obviously have a lot of people we've hired. Um, you know, many of them have not been through the last two cycles. Um, and you know, one of the things that I want to try to remind them is how valuable 1999 was for me, right? Yeah. Like that, it that yet yeah, didn't feel good during the period, and and I actually think this will probably be shorter than that 1999 period. Um, but the what the skills you learn in times like this are so valuable. Right. Mm. We can all, we can all high fives when companies are going public. It's not that hard. No. Um, it's, it's, it's way harder to be able to have to figure out, Oh, wow. We don't really totally have product market fit or, Hey, our cost structure really makes no sense relative to kind of our business opportunity. And we got to figure that out and kind of being there in the trenches, um, with the team. And I think, look, we're not perfect. Um, and I'm sure there are places that there are founders who don't feel like we've invested enough time. But I think if you generally were to call our companies, you know, we're, we're there for them. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of doing what we said we would do. What's going to happen to the companies that raised that valuations 100 times revenue, 50 times mm-hmm. revenue? We saw some SaaS companies do that. 
Mm-hmm. So they're, they had 20 million in revenue. Somebody came along, gave them a $1.5 billion valuation. They raised 150 million. They were spending too much money. Now they're not growing. They're flat. Maybe some people, yeah, their product didn't have great product market fit. It had okay product market fit. So some people are canceling or, you yeah. know, so let's just say they're going to be flat year over year. And now the market's valuing them at 10 times top line or five yeah. times top line. Well, I think there's just, so, I think there's two categories, right? I yeah, think there's please. companies where, um, you know, where we, we can objectively look at it today and say, you know, we were paying prevailing prices in 2021, whatever that price was. Um, and that price is too high based on where markets are today, but the company's still growing at 80%. And we have a lot of those, right? Um, now, is the price still too high? Yes. But you know, the amazing thing about compounding is, you know, 80%, you, you, you get fast, you, you get big quickly. Now, yes. when we were doing deals in 21, we were assuming multiple contraction at exit of 50%, right? Now, multiples contracted 70%. Mm. Now, do I think that they will stay at 70%? I, I personally don't. That's a personal opinion. But you know, the, the market overreacted up. I think it overreacted down. This data is three or four weeks old. So post the activist and Salesforce, it might not be correct. But directionally, um, you know, a month ago, Honeywell, which is a 33% gross margin, was trading a higher revenue multiple than Salesforce, which is an 80% gross margin. Okay, I, we, we can do a lot of analysis, but I think we can both probably say that doesn't make sense. Now, you could say maybe Honeywell is overvalued and Salesforce is terribly valued. That's possible. Um, but I think that when you what you're seeing with these go privates, as an example, is like a recognition that these companies have the potential to be significantly more profitable. And if mm-hmm. you believe that the companies can be significantly more profitable, the revenue multiples have kind of overreacted to the downside. Now, I'm not of the view, you know, you'll, you'll still be with people who will sometimes say, can't wait for things to get back to where they were. I'm like, well, that was probably the anomaly and we're probably closer to normal today. Yeah. And so, but when you assume, you know, a 50% multiple contraction, the key thing ends up being not the price you paid, but whether your growth underwriting was right. Mm. Right. So where our growth underwriting was right, what I'll say is we'll do, a, if we pay too high a price, we won't do what we thought. Right, because because multiples have come down, but we can do okay. Right, yeah. Now we're where we were wrong, where yeah. we're wrong, and we thought it was going to grow at eighty, and we paid a price based on eighty, and it's growing ten. Well, that's a problem, and 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 there, I think the probably the more relevant data point is going to be what's the preference stack. Oh boy, yeah. and right, what's the preference stack, and you know, are you able to are you able to deal that maybe gets people their money back, or maybe gets people some fraction of their money back um i think the risk when those businesses is just play it out you can i mean and particularly if they're still burning um is you know you're just probably having value erode so i think i i do think that you have to take a realistic view uh of what what is the long-term growth rate mm. um and this and is the triage you're doing internally you're saying hey yeah. let's look at the portfolio hey this group they're growing slow, massive overhang with the preference stack. The outcome here, it can't catch up to that valuation. Therefore, and the preference stack is so high, and we got we to gotta think about how this management team is going to have any kind of an exit. Because if the overhang is a quarter million dollars, a quarter billion dollars on some of these companies, and the company's worth 100, you know, how do, how do the management teams, maybe you could explain to the audience, yeah. how the management team you know, gets motivated. How do you keep them in the game if the common is behind two hundred fifty million dollars in preference? That's what's been invested. Company's only worth a hundred. Now you got a management team that owns fifty percent of the common and the employees, and the common is essentially worthless because if it was to get sold, it would sell between a hundred yeah. and two hundred fifty million. Totally fair point. Look, I think a lot of us lived this. Uh, you've lived it too uh, in ninety nine two thousand to a lesser extent in um, two thousand eight two thousand nine. Um, so before I get to the answer to that question, I'll make yeah. one other point, which is I do believe that there's going to be a very interesting opportunity, which is that you're going to have a lot of these venture funds that are going to need to get liquidity, right? Because they want mm-hmm. to raise their next fund. Um, they're not necessarily going to get the valuation they wanted when they sell. But some of these companies, look, a 20% growth company with 80% gross margin, it's not a bad company. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth the multiple that you thought it was worth. But they can actually be pretty interesting businesses if you run them with more of a private equity mindset, right? So I, I do believe that you're going to see kind of call it buyouts uh, get done 
with some of these companies where they're kind of interesting, slower growth platforms where you can do roll-ups in kind of a in a market, right? And we've done some of this. We haven't done it yet with the current class of companies, but I think you're going to see that. So I think you're going to see some types of exits we didn't necessarily see in 2007, 2008, or 99, and 2000. Kind of a new class of exits. Mm. Uh, they're kind of a little bit more private equity driven. Um, but to answer your question, look, I think we've all been through that movie. And I think that the, 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 the thing that we have to do is we, we certainly, you know, we all have the benefit of having a portfolio. Um, you know, founder typically doesn't have a portfolio. I mean, they might have some personal investments, but by and large, they have a portfolio of one. We have a portfolio of, you know, hundreds. Um, and so I think the only way that you can, ex- you, you can't expect people to work for free uh, no. because the biggest thing a founder has is their time. Right. And mm. at some point, if the preference stack is in a way where they can never make any money, well, their incentive is to go start something else. Um, yeah, and it's clean cap table. Yeah, clean cap table. So I think that what what generally ends up happening, and I don't think we're through this yet, Jason, like I think we're early still in the kind of the oh, restructuring boy. of these cap tables. So I think a lot more to come. But I think we're going to create car- management teams will end up with getting carve outs in some of these companies. Um, where they're going to have to participate in the exit from dollar one and not after the pref stack. Um, so the carve out for people who don't know is when, hey, the board says, you know what, the management team, we know there's a big preference stack. If this company gets sold, we're going to earmark 20% of the sale price. If it's 100, if it's 300 to go to the management and to go to employees, knowing that maybe the commons not going to participate. So at least, you know, in a short sale, we're all steering in the right direction correct that's kind of how this would go yeah, correct and and, and yeah. you because you need to people have incentives look there's no indentured servitude you can't expect people to work for free um, right. and one of the beauties of the american capitalist system is you can fail and start over again and so expecting a founder to stick around just because they need to or should uh is probably not kind of realistic uh after a period of time so i think that like it happened in the past it'll happen again um and there will be some of these um, cap tables that will need to get restructured in it. I think rational VCs who've been through this before kind of know, know how to do that. MyCore Acquire is a startup acquisition marketplace that helps you sell your business quickly and easily. And listen, the acquisition process was never described as quick or easy, but MyCore Acquire has changed that just like they changed their name from MicroAcquire and rebranded as Acquire.com. Yes, they want to show the world they can help any startup of any size get acquired. Acquire's mission has remained the same. Help founders achieve life-changing outcomes, build tools that make acquisitions easy, and foster a new generation of entrepreneurs. And the stats on Acquire speak for themselves. They've reported over $2.1 billion in combined revenue of all the startups that are listed on their marketplace, over $500 million in closed acquisition volume already, and over a 1,000 deals have closed. So it's the right place for you to sell your startup. And now you can sell anything from a solo project to a booming company with hundreds of employees. Acquire.com has the tools, experience, and most importantly, engaged buyers to help you achieve your acquisition goals. And if you're on the buy side, you can join over 120,000 other buyers who have skin in the game. Buyers can browse listings for free. And of course, it costs nothing to list or sell your business. If you're thinking about selling your startup or looking to acquire a business in 2023, sign up now for your free acquire.com account. Get more information at try.acquire.com slash twist. That's try.acquire.com slash twist. Take the audience through a recap and how mechanically that works from any of the three errors when we saw, hey, this company is uh, got something, but it maybe doesn't equal what we thought last year. Uh, and there's a management team that wants to keep going, but the existing investors don't want to put another dollar in. They're done. Yeah. And they yeah. own 30, 40% of the company. And then there's this new group of investors who want to come in. How does a mechanical recap work? And, and how do people take that you know, which is, uh, let's just call it what it is, bitter medicine. It's, it's hard to take yeah. the medicine, but you take the medicine, sometimes you at least get some kind of a save. Walk people mechanically through how these dialogues happen. Yeah. Because people so are going to face them this year. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so one thing I'd say is, and look, one of the, look, one of the advantages of being one of, we're often the largest cap, you know, balance sheet around the table, uh, you know, on these deals. And one of the things I try to do with, 
the companies I'm involved in early, particularly if you sense that there's going to be cap- there's going to be a capital need, is to say, look, guys, um, like that. Our advice would be that we really need to reduce the cost structure here, re- you know, create a lot of runway so that if we need to raise, that we minimize the amount of money that we need to raise, because we're basically going to want everyone to participate pro rata. Um, you know, we might have more of the ability to participate pro rata because we're a bigger fund, but we're saying it now. Let's try to reduce the number so that we can all do that. Because if you, everybody participates pro rata, then you don't really need to do a cram down because everybody's ownership kind of stays the same. Um, I think so. That's everyone, phase one. Hey, here's a realistic discussion. Right. We're going to put ten more million more into this business. You own ten percent. I own twenty percent. I put in two. You put in one, and we go from there. I think it's. I start with that because I think it's yeah. really important that those conversations start happening now. Right. Right. Where it gets where it's not good is when that conversation happens. Like, oh, I'm going to miss payroll next week. We like we need to have this conversation, and it just never works out very well. Because every organization needs to get internal buy-in if they're kind of going to continue to support a company, particularly one that might be trouble. So start those conversations early would be my strong advice. Um, and then uh, what generally happens is some set of, uh, but what's the issue? The issue is everyone um, has problems in their portfolio, right? Anybody who says they doesn't have problems are probably not being totally yeah. upfront. Um, and so everybody's going to have to triage to some degree. Right. Um, everyone's have to make tough decisions and say, well, you know, these are the ones I feel great about. And maybe these are the ones I feel less great about. And, um, and you kind of want to smoke that out early to figure out who's going to, who's going to play. And then, and then you get to that point where, um, the company actually needs the money. Uh, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. And, um, let's just take, let's use like basic math, but let's just say that there's companies raised, you know, you know, $25 million. Uh, and the investors own, you know, I'm just good for simple math, half the company, you know, and it's three different, three or four different investors. Now, let's just say that one investor ends up basically taking the entire round. Mm. Um, well, there's a few things they're probably going to do. One is they're going to say, well, um, I, I want to convert all the old pref- preferred to common um, because I want to have a clean preference stack. And one of the reasons to have a clean preference stack, to be clear, because I know founders listen to this as well. It's actually good for founders. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. the second part of what I'm not going to say affects founders as well, but clean balance sheets are generally good, right? It's not great to have really complicated multiple preference stacks when markets are challenged. So I would just say to management, when you, the founders, when you hear this, like, oh, we want to convert all preference, like, that's not bad for you. Like, that's, that's good for, that's not the thing I'd fight. Clean cap table makes the next person coming in to invest look at it and go, oh, clean cap table. I can engage this. I've heard back channel from a lot of investors. Yeah. I was I love the company. I love the founder. It's such a mess. I don't want to be in, in, involved in uncomfortable discussions around the preference stack. I don't want to make people feel bad. And it's sort so of like s- somebody who's selling their home and they they want to get ten million dollars for it because that's what they heard it's worth two years ago. And now the market isn't there for it, and they just they won't take they won't accept it. The reality. So I think that 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 getting to that. Clean preference stack. I think it is a, 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 getting to a clean cap table. I think is is good. Um, then the conversation is okay. Well, if nobody else is going to participate, but me, me being not necessarily insight, whoever that person is, right. whoever the One lead of those investor three. is. Yeah. Um, well, then they're probably going to say, "Look, guys, like the pre money is whatever I want it to be, uh, and I'm going to kind of take the majority of the company." Um, and look, if somebody wants to be really aggressive, they can say the pre-money is zero and I own the whole company. They can say it's half or a third of what it was. It doesn't really matter. They're going to own a lot more than they were they going to own before. Now, a, a, a smart person who does that is then going to go to the management team and say, I'm going to re-incent you and we're going to create a new pool. So yes, you got diluted massively by my investing in the company, but we've cleaned up the cap table. I'm going to give you a new incentive. And now let's go try to create as much value as we can. And it's a look, the the beauty and danger of private investing is people can have very different views. Jason Mm. can think this thing, Devin is the next whatever. And I might think, Oh, I think I I hate the business model. And one of us will end up being right. So either I was right to not write the check or you were right to write the check, but that's okay. We have different views and we took our actions based on that. I think that one of the things I would like, caution against with founders um, and directing this more to founders. Don't 
get emotional about this. This is I, this is kind of I know it's emotional, um, but at the end of the day, once you get through it, I think every it's, it's cleaner for you as a founder or CEO yeah. if you're going to stay in that business. And then the last piece of uh, advice I'd give is, and I can't tell you that we've never done this, but generally when we've done it, it's because nobody else and the founders wanted us to do something with structure. But you're better off just doing a price round, right? Mm. If the company was worth X and now it's worth 0.5 X, it's just better to say it's worth 0.5 X. And, mm. and, you know, we're in this market right now where companies have got so much capital on their balance sheet that they raised in 21. They don't have any incentives to change price. And, and if they don't need the money, that's totally fine. But if you need the money, um, trying to do a flat round with multiple liquidation preferences. I was just heard about a deal yesterday, like, you know, 3X liquidation preference. It's not, that's not a flat round. Mm. Uh, and anybody who looks at the deal next time is going to look at that and say, you know what? That's not a flat round. Uh, yeah, I'm too complicated. I, I want a 3X liquidation preference too. And you're going to end up with more and more complexity in that cap, cap table. So. Sorry for the long answer, Jason, but that, that no, it's it's a very important answer. And there's a lot of mechanics here and founders are going to have to sadly, uh, you know, sharpen their pencils and understand this. The good news I should way, point it out is that the, the founders and the management team will always be taken care of by investors, new investors and previous investors, anybody in between whatever combination it winds up being, because you need great management and they need to be incented properly. So that's a that's one thing that will never change. Yeah, and look, and the only thing I'd say to founders is, look, I know it sometimes feels like in these conversations, there's like the VCs like kind of paper shuffling their way to like more ownership and all of that. But you know, look, this isn't great for investors either, right? We're all having to reset our valuations. We're probably going to make a less return on that investment by doing that. Um, but but we all, I think all the all kind of high quality investors do feel a responsibility to their companies to try to do the right thing. Um, yeah. I'm not going to say everybody, but the vast majority of people that I deal with, investors that we're in, they all want to kind of try to do the right thing. Um, but emotion does get in the way. Yeah. You know, the thing I'm seeing is even in, I had one or two instances where people were being a bit predatory, you know, unrealistic terms. I just said, these feel predatory and these are bad for uh, your reputation. Can we come up with something that's clean? And it was just it was really encouraging to hear you sort of reinforce that for people who are listening, for people who might be in those deals that I'm no, sort of subtweeting now is keep it clean, keep it simple so we no, can all by the way, I'm, grow the company. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that we have some deals where there is there is structure, but generally the reason that there's structure is because there's a desire <laughs> to kind of keep valuation kind of Ugh. where it is, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, generally probably your investors already marked it down, right? So what's what's the art? There's an artificiality to it all that right. you know, I just think you have to be mindful of. All right, let's look at a couple of portfolio companies as we wrap here. You did the Series A in one of my favorite companies, com.com. Uh, maybe yeah. talk a little bit about finding that company and just how extraordinary it was to find a company that had raised so little money and had gotten to, you know, such incredible uh, yeah, I mean, revenue. One of the, you know, one of the... Uh, one of the kind of the amazing things about um, kind of insight and, you know, our, our kind of calling efforts and program is that we just, uh, we, we, we see a lot of these companies that have kind of bootstrapped themselves. It's harder to find those these days, yeah. um, you know, but, 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 you know, Com was kind of a great, you know, example of a company. And, you know, what, what I liked about it was, that it, well, you know, it, it always happens that there's always some personal interest that gets, you know, it engages somebody. And, yeah. you know, I, I had started to try meditating. Um, and full disclosure, I was trying it on Headspace at the time, right? Yeah. And I heard, or, or, um, you know, that uh, one of one of the members of the team who sourced the deal um, came to me and said, Hey, what do you think? He was uh, at the time, was probably almost a little, probably a little bit of trepidation to like raise a meditation company. And I was like, sure. No, that seems really that seems really interesting. Let's let's get on the phone with them. And of course, you're an investor, so you know the company and you know yeah. the numbers. They had tremendous momentum, and they did it with a really small team. And um, they were really good marketers, and they really built this brand on initially on very small dollars. 
uh, subsequent to that, you know, obviously we invested. And, you know, since then, um, a number of other people have, you know, have come into that investment. And we've actually done, as I think you also know, like an acquisition or two to really kind of yeah. broaden what we're doing. Because the challenge that they had that Headspace and others had is kind of what we talked about earlier, right? The meditation definitely had a COVID tailwind. Yeah. We all had more time. So, okay, I'll meditate. And we a lot of anxiety. Finished. We all had a lot of stress and anxiety. So like, okay, I'll meditate. Now look, we probably all have stress and anxiety today too, for a different reason. Yeah. All the reasons we're talking about today. But um, you know, we have less time. Like every we're trying to get back to the office, people are traveling more. And so they had to keep thinking about how do I how do they reinvent? And as you know, they, you know, they probably do more of their usages around sleep today than it is about meditation and you know yeah. we're kind of expanding into kind of mental health and these other areas so it's been a it's been a, you know it's been a super fascinating journey yeah yeah great great company and just amazing how capital efficient they are um yeah. you know we we put three hundred seventy eight thousand dollars in when it was a four or five million dollar company and then the next thing we know Series A when you did it at two fifty, yeah, yeah, it was like you know many years in between that. I was like, well, how did you do all this? It was like, well, we had revenue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? You built this off is, of revenue? This unique, differentiated thing. <laughs> uh, it, pretty miraculous when you see that because it it, it does uh, inspire you. DistroKid, my good friend Phil Kaplan, he has uh, he's another bootstrapper. This is another an incredible entrepreneur. Well, not only, not yeah. only bootstrap with like really high margins, right? Like. Really Talk high about distro kid, how you found that and just so, the nature uh, of the business. Uh, one of our associates, Bradford, um, who is also really into music, um, mm. you know, came to me and he, he, um, he said, Hey, I, th I think this company is really interesting. You kind of walked me through. And by the way, when he first came to me, I was like, distro kid, Bradford, this sounds like a company that's like a $500,000 of revenue. This can't be like a big company. He's like, no, no, no we didn't have the numbers at the time. Um, and I, he's like, no, I'm pretty sure. It, it it's bigger than that and mm. then i call my son who's in college but he's really into music and he djs and makes music and I'm like what do you think this company distro kid he's like oh he starts talking to me about the different products in the space and i'm like okay so like it seems like there's really a product here um and at the time they so they had bootstrapped prior to us um had had raised some private equity capital right so they had brought in a they had brought in an investor um, they didn't need the money and the company was making a lot of money. Um, but they had started getting a bunch of inbound interest from strategics and kind of yep. other other parties. Um, and so they they said, Hey, we'd like to look at it. And so the timing ended up being great because they were thinking about doing something. We started kind of cold calling them. Um, and um, you know, Philip. So like, you yeah. know, he's a he's like a product machine. I mean, you, yeah. you're doing a Zoom call with him, and he's like coding while he's talking to you. Right. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of common that way about Alex and Michael, who are just such product driven oh, founders. Product focus. Yeah. Um, and like, the interesting thing yeah. about that is that that and that's well, so it's good. The good news in that is he spends so much time on product that we just think there's lots of other things that we can do with the company, right? Sure. Like, and and. Um, there's so much more functionality to add. The price has always been the same, but you know, there's, yeah. if we add more functionality, there's some competitors out there that charge a lot more for less. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I think we're just in, even though the company's a pretty big profitable company, I think we're still in like er, very early innings of the district opportunity. You, uh, I don't know if you're still on the board of WeWork. Um, but I you are, where do we work? Still we, on the board of we work. Well, we came yeah. in, keep in mind, as part of the the recap, really. Yeah. So, Perfect. um, uh, we came in as part of the recap, uh, when um, when they kind of effectively took it public using a SPAC. Yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, I am still on the board, and you know, Sandeep, uh, who's the CEO, is you know, you know, I think one of the best real estate executives out there. So, so take us through that. This is uh, a recap. We talked about that earlier, and this is like hard work. You've got this high flyer. You got a mercurial CEO uh, who gets a lot of attention, good and bad. Well, I have to, I have to yeah. give you know uh, yeah. the the credit around the hard work, uh, and I'll because I'm on the board. I won't talk specifics about sure. the company, but um, look, a lot of the hard work for the um, you know SPAC transaction. 
you know, was in, you know, in fairness done by the SoftBank team and the existing management team. You know, we came in and did diligence as part of and said, look, the only way this makes sense for us is if it's kind of a, you know, relatively clean cap table. And, um, but they, I think to their credit, recognized that they needed to do that and to give mm. the company a path to raise capital and to then create, you know, future, you know, liquidity for, uh, I'm sorry, create a, a, a way to get liquidity for SoftBank and other shareholders over time. So, yeah. you know, in that case, uh, some, some of that credit has to go to the existing shareholders who were kind of willing to really think about how to do this in a way that made sense for new investors. And that goes back to what we said. I think it's, yeah. a, it's a responsibility if you're an existing shareholder to really be, to think about what are the things that you can do uh, to try to make sure that you're making it possible for somebody to come into that deal. Let's talk for a minute uh, as we wrap here. We were having a little uh, preamble before we, we uh, started recording about being an Indian American and the ascension of the uh, Indian American CEO in Silicon Valley and, and so many uh, venture capitalists, the extraordinary success uh, of, of this group in, in Silicon Valley. What was it like 20 years ago? And then, you know, what, what do you think of just what you've actually seen uh, with well, Indian Americans so my, look, my running my some dad, of the great companies? Yep. And my dad came here as a as an immigrant. He had a he had a scholarship to go to Berkeley, uh, uh, and he had not a penny to his name. Um, and he you know, lived on somebody's sofa for the first few months that he was here. You know, paying whatever he could afford to pay, um, and. Um, and it gave me the ability to be, be successful enough to be able to put me through college and give me the opportunity to do this. And, you know, the thing that, the thing that I worry about most, and I'll start with that. Yeah. Um, is that if you look at the CEOs of the major tech companies, you look at Google, you look at Adobe, you look at Microsoft, we can yeah. keep going. Um, they're all Indian immigrants. Um, yeah. and, and by the way, I don't suggest there aren't other immigrants who are extremely important. And yet, many of those, and my dad, if you're trying to come to this country today, might not be able to come here. Um, this is something that needs to be fixed. ASAP. This, this needs to yeah. be fixed. And at, what was disappointing, um, you know, watching the State of the Union, uh, I don't want to make it a political comment. I'll just make that, that when... Um, when there was discussion at the State of the Union about immigration, only half of the group, half stood up. And, yeah. and this to me seems like such a no-brainer, regardless of your political affiliation. Um, whether you're pro, whether you're pro uh, company creation, you're pro capitalism. You're. I don't care really what it is you believe. I have a hard time believing that there's a scenario in which making sure that the next generation of Sundars, the next generation, my dad, and the next generation come to this country. You know, my, uh, you know, my sister uh, is getting married this July and we couldn't get a, uh, a, a visa for her fiance's mom to come here for the wedding. Right. What is um, going on in this country? This so country think, was built by immigrants and well, the, it, this specific group has created so much value. We have to be able to, separate immigration from recruitment of elite talent. We right. need to recruit. We see this on the front lines. We need more entrepreneurs. We need more companies. We want to invest more money. We need to recruit the smartest, most ambitious people in the world. If they're coming from India, let's open the floodgates. Let's recruit wherever, the best where, people, wherever they're coming from. Wherever they're coming from. And one of the things that's interesting is you know, during COVID, um, we did actually make some investments in India. And one of the, my observations was for the first time, you saw people come to the U.S., get educated, you know, whether it is Wharton, Harvard Business School. So we give them the, the, the most elite education possible. Unbelievable. And then they basically go back. Get kicked out. And they create, get kicked out. Well, whether they get kicked out or don't feel welcome, it doesn't really yeah. matter. Same uh, my view is, and again, whether this be, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> Indian immigrants or Korean immigrants, it doesn't really matter to me. Like we should, the welcome mat should be out. We should be hugging these people that want to come to this country. Hundred um, percent. And so yeah. that, to me, look, I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate. Um, I feel like I've been very lucky, um, and uh, I feel like the uh, the Indian uh, diaspora has had a huge impact, uh, not just obviously in technology, but in other areas as well. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think this country, I think overall 
for all these years was very welcoming. My dad would have said that he thought that the country was incredibly welcoming of him. Yeah. Um, and for him, it's been a disappointment to, 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 to feel like we've lost that as a country. We're regressing. Then uh, what, what got us to this point? What created this amount of winning yeah. was recruiting and being the place where the most talented people, most ambitious people wanted to come. Let's bring that back. Let's not forget what got us here. If we if we lose, this is, you know, this is the place everybody in the world, I think, still wants to be. Yeah, but we're at risk of losing that. And if we lose that, we lose a lot, not just in technology, in my opinion, but in a lot of things, culture, lot, lots yeah. of areas. Um, and so I, I, I one, I, I always say, like, I'm very lucky to have had a father who came here and kind of gave me the ability to be in this position. Um, and, you know, my only hope is that as a society, we can come together, irrespective of our political differences, uh, yeah. and agree that being a melting pot is what makes America special. Um, and Amazing. let's make sure we stick with that. Yeah, I think on that note, uh, Devin, great job on the pod. So great to catch up with your continued success. And we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye bye.